0: Hi, this is Panel Beater, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine, and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Facebook page. Welcome to Radiotherapy. This morning, one of our regular hosts is off holidaying in Tassie. So while the Kit Kat is away, the Team gets to play. Joining me, Doctor in the studio is our other regular host, Nurse EpiPen, who I first met working in a liver clinic, later last no, it's early last century actually, or late last century really, and uh, we've been mates ever since. Epi and I have got some pretty amazing experts all to ourselves today, so no doubt um, we'll be getting our medical problems sorted out for free and uh, very publicly as well, Professor. Mimi Tang is an internationally recognised paediatric allergist and immunologist working at the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne. She has a particular interest in developing novel treatments for food allergies and sits on a whole lot of expert committees. Just This is just some of them. The American Academy of Aspirin Allergy and Immunology, the World Allergy Organisation, and the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, and a whole lot more too. We'll be chatting with Mimi about what a food allergy actually is how it presents clinically, its causes, and how close we are to a preventative cure. Professor Lou Irving is a respiratory physician who has worked in the public hospital system for almost as long as me and EpiPen. Maybe a smidge longer. But unlike us, he seems to have made it to the top of his craft. And I'm looking at EpiPen. We, we've almost made it. Have, you, have we made Oh, sorry, I haven't put you on, your mic on.
1: Have we made it? Put me on. Put me on. Um, yeah, I've made it. You've made it at the top? Well, yeah. I, yep. I, I Without I, a PhD.
0: I think I've stalled. Anyway, um, Lou is at the top. He's a director of the Lung Tumour Stream, and of clinical training at Hospitals Royal Melbourne and Peter Mack. He has served in the RAAF, including a three-year posting to Malaysia with deployments to Rwanda and East Timor. We've got to talk to him about that. Three years ago, he established the Long COVID Clinic at the Royal Melbourne Hospital with psychiatrist Professor Alex Holmes, who I know.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
0: Hey, um, look, there is so much around in terms of medical uh, news. I've got an article which just absolutely blew my mind. It came from. It's a British Medical Journal publication. It's not, I mean, you know, when people think of the British Medical Journal, they think of the one journal, the BMJ, but it's also an umbrella organisation for a whole lot of different journals. And um, one of them is, uh, what's it called? Occupational uh, occupational Environment Medicine from uh, the British Journal, uh, the British Medical Journal. And this is a fascinating article looking at occupational environment and the risk of ovarian cancer. And basically what happened is these uh, researchers looked at a whole lot of um, uh, women over a period of many years, I think it was greater than 10 years retrospectively, and they looked, at, they looked at those women that developed ovarian cancer versus those who didn't and their jobs. So does your job, what you do day to day, Confer a risk to developing ovarian cancer. And what they found was this this is quite fascinating. They found that uh, this is a population based study in. uh, Nice. Do you like population based? Population
1: based, based. beautiful.
0: Yeah, in Montreal, Canada, um, collected from 491 cases of ovarian cancer and 897 controls, that is, people who didn't have it. Associations with ovarian cancer risk were estimated for each of the several occupations. Now, and you had to be in the occupation for 10 years to make it sort of uh, statistically valid. What they found was there were positive associations with these particular uh, types of employment. Hairdressers, barbers and beauticians had a three times greater odds ratio odds ratio, uh, three times greater risk of developing ovarian cancer than background population. Sewers and embroiders about a 1.8 times greater risk. And this is the interesting thing here. Um, where was it? It was um, accountants also have a greater risk as well. I'm just trying to find where that accountant, thing, the accountant uh, thing is. But yeah, accountants as well. Well, they're they're not mixing chemicals or anything. Yeah. What's... So, <clears throat> so I looked at this, and what they what they actually said was that, um, it, it, with hairdressers and beauticians, there's loads and loads of different chemicals floating around, and those chemicals are well known, and they're things like hair talc, organic dyes, hydrogen peroxide, ammonia. Um, synthetic fibres, cellulose, gases, all these things are known to be carcinogenic. Or, and so it, it well, that would seem clear. But then, you know, why would it be um, accountants? And what they found was, I'm um, just, it's funny how I underlined all of this. And now that <laughs> I'm on radio and I was absolutely going, wow, this is amazing. And I'm on radio, I can't find it. Um, they found that. Uh, women who were uh, accountants. Well, why would
1: they have? Why would you think they would have a greater risk? Because there's no chemicals there. That's what I'm worried about. I can't get it, but I do know in the olden days, mm. talc in women's knickers used to be a risk factor. You did mention talc, and that was in the old days where women would try mm-hmm. to um, sort of reduce uh, vulval smells and things mm. by putting talc in their undies. Oh, right. That, that they didn't find that as a strong association. Well, what they found, I am just wondering, accountants, why accountants? Yeah, well, what come the, on, well, I want it. What's that's the really answer? fascinating. So they said
0: that um, uh, white collar professional occupations, including accountants, have a higher risk uh, than um, than people who aren't in those professions, and they think that it might be because they spend their days sitting not walking around so sedentary behaviors they're, sad, they're postulating may be associated with the risk of ovarian cancer um, and they mm-hmm. did a post hoc analysis where they adjusted for physical activity to explore this and suggested that increased risks in accountancy related occupations did not change hmm uh, yeah so it may be physical activity maybe something else how about that and they found that nurses, had less of a
1: risk. Of, we know
0: why. Because they're walking running around, around doing lots of teachers. physical. yeah.
1: But what about yeah. admin officers or people that do have a sedentary job? Well, they why said aren't sales, they popping up. They said oh.
0: salespeople as well, as okay. well. So it just goes to show how lifestyle factors. I mean, there's your job and there's chemicals, but lifestyle factors are so important. And you know, well, we yet ne- again, yet again, yet again, which is going to be my next piece of medical news. But over to you for yours. Okay.
1: Okay, so I've got a good one. Yeah. Um, so the Therapeutic Goods Administration um, has fulfilled a promise that the government made mm. about amending the restrictions on prescribing MS2-step, which is it used to be called, or its nickname was RU486. Oh. So it's a medicine that you can take to end a pregnancy. Yeah. And they've, and they've approved that there's some changes to the legislation. And my thing is it's in early stage of pregnancy. And the definition of that is that it has to be less than 63 days of gestation. So hang
0: on. This is a therapeutic abortion. This is a, a medical, medical abortion. Abortion. termination. Medical termination yes. through a pill. Through
1: right. a pill. Yep. Right. And um, <clears throat> so 63 days of gestation. That might be interesting to determine. But ultrasound maybe. But um, you can use it before
0: 63 days. Yes. So that's yes. Two, two, two months, is that right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, roughly. Yeah. So, right. and it's been around for 10 years, right. but it's been very strictly um, guarded with who can prescribe it and when right. and that sort of thing. So, and I just, an interesting thing that they, um, in this article, it said that there are six million women of reproductive age in Australia.
0: So six that, million.
1: Six million. Out of what are we? 25. 25, yeah. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, there's a lot of women that um, might need access to this mm. kind of treatment. So, what it means is on the 1st of August, once everything gets stamped, stamped and might Proofed, be a bit longer, off, you yeah. can imagine it'll be a bit longer, yeah. GPs will no longer be required to undertake mandatory training and registration every three years to prescribe MS 2-step mm-hmm. or... um ru is what we, we... used to call it. Yeah, what yeah. we... <laughs> um, pharmacies will be able to stock it and dispense the medication and any health professional with the appropriate qualification, training, um, can prescribe this, including nurse practitioners. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah so this is a new feather in the hat for yeah. nurses that if you do this extra training to become a nurse practitioner, we've had them on the show, yeah. and uh, it's a, of a master's equivalent, and they need 10-plus years' experience in clinical nursing. Really? Yeah. Wow, so they're that. highly trained yeah. nurses, and um, they uh, can have been given granted permission to prescribe this uh, medication. Um, but just to be absolutely careful, clear with the listeners that everybody or anybody that does provide it has to be appropriately qualified and trained, which includes counselling the woman Mm -hmm. pre and post-treatment and assessing her for Mm. um, whether she should go ahead with this Mm. treatment and... um, And going back to the nurse practitioner thing, because how amazing would that be? They are allowed to prescribe in hospitals, clinical care practices, women's health centres, sexual health, community health centres. And where does that sort of thing lead you to? We can think about the metropolitan areas, but rural areas. areas, So accessing um, rural areas with your GP that you know or a nurse that runs the clinic. I mean, it's it's really terrific that they can now have it.
0: Well, we were just talking before the show about a particular nurse practitioner. I don't think you were there, actually. I was talking with your friends about a nurse practitioner in a country town and people come from far and wide to see this. Like, they'll drive for hours to see this particular nurse practitioner. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: They're highly qualified. Yeah. Um, but there's and just as a caveat that not all health practitioners would feel comfortable about yeah. prescribing yeah. this medication yeah. and um, that's fine too yeah. but so long as they um, refer the woman on yeah. to somebody that would be so
0: well now i've got another piece of yeah. information for you yeah what does playing chess doing crosswords and hang on
1: <laughs> it's forgotten already so it oh doesn't does it doesn't work for him <laughs>
0: Using a computer, oh, using a computer or journaling, have in common.
1: Playing chess, <laughs> using Googling journals or something. What was the middle one? Uh, uh,
0: using a computer, journaling, playing chess, uh, crosswords,
1: playing card games. Makes that makes you smarter. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, that's fair well, enough. No, um, a- Mentally challenged and stimulated and keeps your brain alive.
0: Yeah. So there was a new study, and I'll be very quick as I'm aware. We've got two fantastic guests uh, in the green room. Um, A new study out from the – was it Monash University, School of Preventative – SPPM? Preventative Health Medicine. Health oh. Pro- public and Preventative Medicine. Oh, sorry, I've got this wrong. SPPM um, by uh, Wu Zimu is a lead author and Professor Joanne Ryan is the um, head of, I think, this particular study. They looked at 10,000 Australians over the age of 70. What's over uh, several years? What stopped you from developing Alzheimer's or, what, or, or, or cognitive impairment or dementia? What kind of things? And they found that um, doing things like writing letters, journaling, using a computer, taking education classes um, decreased uh, the, the risk of developing Alzheimer's by 11%. And things like playing card games, chess, uh, doing crosswords was a 9% decrease in actual developing Dementia. So you can see these kind of things where you keep your brain active actually work. This and this was this study I think was only released last week. So it's mm. pretty impressive. Like mm. we've got hard evidence now hard evidence. that this is the sort of stuff you should be doing. Um, so I'm going to start doing that uh, crossword and Exercise morning. and
1: exercise. So, I'm yeah.
0: terrible at chess. My eight-year-old I son loves chess. chess. Oh. I love chess. Maybe that, well, maybe we should play chess against each other. There oh, we you're go. on. Done.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
0: We are welcome into the studio, Professor Mimi Tang. Good morning, Mimi. We are just going to adjust the microphone for you. This is live. Yeah. This is how you know you're on live radio because everything's happening in,
1: in real life. I'm going to turn up your level. Exciting. There we go. Over to you, Epi. Um, <laughs> morning, Mimi. Good morning. <laughs> Mimi and I have known each other for a long time on emails and yes. not personally because we worked on a study looking at pneumococcal vaccines in people without spleens. Oh, and right. Mimi comes up all the time because of kids and allergies and... She's just a whiz at all of this, and so many questions to ask. So you. many questions. So, uh, you're doing, Dr. Mimi. I'm, I'm doing. Dr. <laughs> 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 thanks. That for sounds c- terrible. Uh, Real, <laughs> <laughs> very <laughs> professional. <laughs> very unprofessional. Sorry. sorry um, um, I'm interviewing uh, Dr. Mal. Would you like to interview <laughs> Professor Mimi Tang?
0: <laughs> Again, Mimi, thanks for coming in. Um, you're in an er- in a burgeoning area of medicine, um, allergies, immunology. It's just. I cannot open a medical journal without hearing about some new immunological treatment that's going to cure cancer. I mean, last year it was um, rectal cancer, looking at immunological treatments. Then I just had one about gli- uh, glioblastoma, muscle film, uh, brain tumours. You're more in the kind of allergic realm. Tell us kind of what you do day-to-day clinically, what that looks like.
3: Yeah, so we see patients in the clinic Um I guess one of the reasons I've gone into the research I do in food allergies is because of what I observed in the clinic. And we see um, children coming in with all sorts of allergy problems. What was interesting was in the 90s, you had mainly children coming in with eczema and asthma, Yeah. right? And then it was really very quick, the transition across. Um, by the mid-2000s, I noticed that something like three-quarters of the patients I was seeing were coming in because of reactions to foods and worried about food allergy. And it's it was quite disheartening, actually. It still is, because we don't really have a lot to offer them. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, what we recommend to patients is that they simply try to avoid the allergen that's causing the food allergy. Mm. And this isn't as easy as it sounds. Mm. It's like, oh, okay, you go home, just don't eat peanuts or don't eat egg or don't eat milk. But It has such a major impact on the life of the child, the lives of their family, friends. Every time you go out, you know, the lifestyle restrictions of avoidance are Mm. substantial. Mm. And that is, in fact, I feel the most significant burden for Mm. people who live with food allergies Mm to carry on a day-to-day basis it's that constant vigilance around reading every ingredient label when you go shopping every time you go out knowing you know what what's there so that's what it's like I think uh, on a day-to-day basis for me it's um, it's what drives me to do the research that I do Uh, it's the yeah it's the feeling of not being able to help someone as much as you'd like to be able to help them.
0: So where are we up to with... I mean, you say um, a child comes into your clinic, uh, they're a a primary school-age child, they've got uh, an anaphylactic peanut allergy, which means a very, very severe uh, reaction to peanuts. What what do you do for them? Or what can you do for
3: them, I should say? So at this time in the clinical setting, just what I said, which is we ask the family to avoid all peanut in the right. child's diet, um, we can also educate the family mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the child around how to manage allergic reactions yep. because we know avoidance fails, yeah, all right? Yep. So the, the data shows us that every um, every year about half of the children with peanut allergy yeah. end up having an accidental exposure that leads to a reaction. So- Okay. So we know it fails. So we spend a fair bit of time educating families around how to recognise and treat allergic reactions in the community. And then we might prescribe them an adrenaline auto-injector, either an EpiPen or an Anapen. An EpiPen. Um, So
0: you were talking before that this has become something that you're seeing a lot more of, these allergies. Is is that a reflection of the, the incidence incidences actually increased or we're just recognising it more? And if it is an increase,
3: what's it due to? What great questions. Yeah. <laughs> um, definitely rates have gone up. Right, But yeah. I also, I think you have to acknowledge that we are more aware of allergies and I'm sure that we're recognising them better. Um, but when you look at studies that have applied the same... Approach to diagnosis or monitoring you can see a real increase mm. what's troubling is that the increase has been in recent decades accelerating so if, um, mm. how do I explain this there's a rate of increase and it's like the velocity it's like a curve it's actually going faster and faster so it's and accelerating faster. The, wow. the good news is yeah. well what we the thing is you said what's causing it yeah yeah that actually is a bit elusive for us at mm-hmm. the moment. There's huge amounts of research going on trying to understand specific factors that are driving the rise in food allergies because that's how you can stop it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what the, what we do know is that the westernised lifestyle is contributing. So let's wind back a little bit and mm-hmm. talk about the immune system. Mm-hmm. When When... When you're born, your immune system's still pretty naive. Mm-hmm. It has a lot to learn. It needs a lot of training. It needs to go to school. Mm-hmm. And what we understand now is that it's um, the exposures that you encounter in the first years of life that are critical in determining the tone of your immune responsiveness. Mm-hmm. It basically programs mm-hmm. your immune system to either know how to respond in a healthy way or to be a bit compromised in the way it responds. And one of the exposures that seems to be most important is microbial exposures. And the reason for that is that the gut microbiota is probably the most significant um, factor interacting with the developing immune system in the child that determines your immune health for a lifetime. So we now understand that it's these early life exposures, particularly microbial exposures, that can establish the healthy gut microbiome, which in turn interacts with the developing immune system and can establish either optimal immune homeostasis. What we mean by that is the ability to recognise harm when it's there and be tolerant when it's not and so that, these are the factors that um, drive healthy immune responses. A couple of other things very quickly mm-hmm. on yeah, top yeah. of the gut microbiome. Uh, um, we know that uh, vitamin D seems to play a role. Your diet, mm-hmm. and the diet probably feeds through the gut microbiome. Right. Right, yeah. a healthy diet. and mm-hmm. um, uh, We know that... People that live closer to the equator have lower rates of allergy problems, so that might feed into the vitamin D story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think they're the key ones. Um, so just to
0: take a back step, that, that whole idea of the gut flora, the gut, the bugs in the gut, that, and you were saying that a Western lifestyle um, impacts upon that, which then impacts upon the, the higher rates of uh, peanut allergy – are you saying that in Western that, that we're getting too clean, that we're getting rid of all those sort of bugs that we could have? I mean, you don't want to have, you know, lots of highly infectious things in your in your environment. You don't want to have it too clean, but we we've gone too far to the to the cleaner side. Is that right?
3: Well, look, to some degree, what you're saying is correct. Yeah. Um, but wrapping it all together, I think we needed to. Um, improve sanitation. Yeah, yeah We needed yeah. to move away from cholera, yeah, yeah. typhoid. Yeah. And I don't know how else we might have done it. Yeah. Um, <coughs> what has happened, though, a consequence of improved sanitation has been that we've lost exposure to our friends, the mm. good bugs, mm. alongside the sort of pathogens. and And perhaps there is... Overuse of antibiotics. Mm, mm. Um, We know that that can impact the gut microbiota, especially in early life. Perhaps caesarean section Mm -hmm. um, has also contributed. And is that because the vaginal flora don't get uh, exposed to the neonate? Is that why? Yeah. Exactly right. So your first dose of bacteria when you get born into the world, um, that is a very important uh, determinant of what your gut microbiota ultimately looks like. It's the seeding bacteria. Of
0: course. And from there,
3: the communities grow and it can really have a major impact on what your composition of gut microbiota looks like in the long term. Now,
0: I've also heard anecdotally that um, in some countries where uh, babies are exposed to peanut allergens quite young, um, they have less of an incidence of uh, peanut allergy as the kid
3: grows up. Is that, is that Does that have, hold any water? Oh, absolutely. So right now the only effective prevention strategy we have for food allergies mm. is to introduce food allergens... Mm-hmm in the first year of life. So this makes sense if you think about it like this. Your gut is actually trained to develop tolerance to whatever it's exposed to. You know, the myriad of food antigens that we eat every day, the majority of people are not allergic to and the majority of even people who are allergic are only allergic to a few allergens. So even in children who are allergic they're actually able to induce tolerance to most things that they ingest. Mm. What happens is um, if you have a situation where the first exposure to the food antigen is through an inflammatory milieu Mm. environment, the immune system can go the wrong way and respond with an incorrect allergy inflammation type response. Mm. And so the theory here is that... Let's say you have eczema Mm -hmm. as a baby and your skin is inflamed. It's now lost its barrier. If you happen to be exposed to the food antigen through your skin, which is an inflamed environment, your immune system will generate an allergy response to it. So this idea of eating the food earlier is kind of, I think, uh, in very simple terms... Mm aimed at trying to get exposure through your natural tolerance uh, mechanisms, Mm. seeing the the food for the first time through the gut, allowing your gut to do what it normally does, the Mm. gut immune system to do what it normally does, Mm. and hopefully inducing that correct tolerance response before it's exposed through the skin. Tell us about your research. (laughs) <laughs> well, there's uh, so much to tell. Um, my research is actually very much um, focused on three areas. Yeah. The first is what we've been talking about, yeah. trying to understand how the immune system uh, goes wrong and leads to allergy responses. And the reason for trying to do that is so that hopefully we can develop new strategies to either prevent or treat food allergies. A second stream of research for me is trying to really improve the way we manage food allergies and so I have been working on developing treatments for food allergy that can induce remission. Um, By that we mean the child gets to live as if they do not have food allergy. They hopefully can eat their allergen freely, have substantial improvement in quality of life. So is this a pill or an injection? Or, or? <laughs> So what we've been working on is something called oral immunotherapy. And what that is, it's kind of counterintuitive. What you do is you actually uh, feed the child who's allergic to the, say, peanut. You mm. feed them peanut. You start at very tiny doses mm. so it's safer. Mm-hmm and you build it up quite quickly if you can, Mm -hmm. that's actually the crux of the work we've been doing. We've been developing an an approach of oral immunotherapy that we think leads to remission because we go quickly and to a high dose. Uh, So we, we take the children up to a higher dose, and then we keep them at that high dose for a total of... 18 months overall. Mm -hmm. And after that, we've seen that somewhere between 50% and half and three quarters of children that are treated have achieved remission of peanut allergy. And these children, uh, we've followed them now for four or five years after they've stopped treatment. And the vast majority of them are still in remission four or five years later. They've got incredible improvement in quality of life Mm. Mm. which to me is the most important outcome because as i said earlier it's the lifestyle restrictions it's the quality of life impact it's the fear of that Mm -hmm. potentially fatal reaction that children and families struggle with when they're living with food allergy so i think an effective treatment really is about improving their quality of life nothing else Mm. Um, and As it happens, being able to eat your allergen freely and seeing that you can tolerate it without having a reaction seems to drive this improvement in quality of life. And that sort of no longer having to avoid the allergen takes away those social dietary limitations, which are another aspect of quality of life impact. So,
0: Yeah, I think people who don't have an allergy or who don't know somebody with a significant allergy, they they think it's about um, just not having that, say, peanut to eat but it's not it's about avoiding anything that has anything to do with peanuts that causes all the social um, i guess uh, difficulties like going out for a meal you know, going to school and you know m- not sharing sandwiches and you know even the knife that somebody's used to cut a peanut you can't use that for the cut of the bread it's really very 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 tough so you can just imagine these poor kids are having to you know be scrupulous and then even when they are scrupulous you know as you were saying uh, can have uh, a reaction.
1: Um, So Mimi could you just um, help us understand what the signs and symptoms of an allergic reaction might be? Absolutely. So an allergic reaction can be quite um,
3: varied. A mild reaction involves sort of Hives on the face, you might get swelling of the lips, eyes, face. And actually, funnily enough, this sort of mild reaction is what scares parents the most because it happens really quickly and they see their child's face puff up in front of them and they get terrified. But f- fortunately, that's a mild reaction. From there, you can get vomiting, tummy pain, diarrhea. That's also still really a mild reaction. A Serious reactions when you get involvement of the airway or your circulation. So if you get um, change in the voice, persistent coughing, difficulty breathing, noisy breathing, you know, going back to your ABCs of, of life support, that's potentially life-threatening because it's compromising your airway. And then I think the most serious type of reaction is when your circulation becomes involved and a young child might go pale and floppy. Um, an older individual, a child or adult, could collapse or feel drowsy. And actually, um, bringing this back around, uh, this is the third thing that my research group focuses on in trying to help people in their day-to-day management of allergies is that we try to develop innovative tools that can support families in managing um, their allergies. And something that we developed, oh, gosh, it must be about five years ago, is called AllergyPal. It's an app that you can get on your smartphone and it allows people looking after children or anyone really to recognise the signs of um, food allergy and to help treat it in the right way. What i found as a doctor, seeing families um, and children with food allergies, is you can teach someone when they're sitting with you in a calm setting, what a reaction looks like and what you need to do when it happens. But all of that flies out uh-huh. of the window when it, you know it's in uh-huh. live uh-huh. in the community. You're at a birthday party. Uh-huh. Um, one of the children that your friends have, have left with you in your care suddenly has a reaction because they've eaten something they were allergic to. Oh, my God, what do I do? right? Or even if it's your own child, in you're in the restaurant and um, you know what to do, but it's just very stressful. And we all know it's harder to perform when you're under stress. So um, what this app is designed to do really is an, uh, it has this interactive platform where the individual who might suddenly not be sure what to do can just select the symptoms and the app tells you. What was okay, the name of the app again, Mimi? Allergy Pal.
0: Allergy Pal. Allergy Pal. Yes, Allergy
1: Pal. It's free. (laughs) And Um, you're part of the person that put it together? uh, Yes. So um, myself
3: and my colleague, Katie Allen, in the day, uh, we developed this app. Yes. Allergy
0: Pal. Now, um, we're going to ask you to hang around if that's okay. Absolutely. uh, Um, Very briefly, um, people, if they want to find out more, they can go on the web to find out more or...? Your clinic. Can you just huh. give
3: us briefly the details of, of allergy pal oh, of everything support. Support. support? Like, where would people go to get information if they're worried about their kids having um, an allergy? Allergies. Well, there are many resources. I would recommend that they look at a website called um, it's the Allergy and Anaphylaxis Australia website. This is the National Patient Organisation that supports families. I think, and yeah. that would be a good place to start.
1: And, and RCH website.
3: Okay. RCH website, or hospital, also yeah. the oh. Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology okay. Allergy website, and the Murdoch Children's yeah. Research
0: Institute. I'd be going RCH. Yeah. Yeah. It's the simplest.
2: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
0: I was just saying to the panel that uh, my wife and I have got this thing called the coma song. That is, if one of us is in a coma, we play a song that will bring us out of the coma and we have to choose our coma song. Now, as I was saying that, our next guest was saying, really, Rob? Well, have a listen to this. So, if you pen over to you. (laughs)
1: Lou, you just gave us an incredible story about something that happened to you last year. And... Look, words have found me to how to introduce this topic, but would you mind just sharing with us what happened to you
4: last year? So last March, I was at the hospital. Uh, I'm a respiratory physician. I was looking into people's lungs, a procedure called a bronchoscopy. In between cases, I went down to the radiology department to look at the CT of the next patient. And I collapsed. And the reason I collapsed was that I had an undiagnosed very large brain aneurysm and uh, of the type that is normally associated with a very poor outcome but I'm the luckiest person in the world because literally standing next to me was an anesthetist and one of Australia's best interventional radiologists and I was fixed within minutes and back at work after three months but I did wake up from a coma you know from the induced coma the next day in ICU, with a bit of music in the background and my family around me, and uh, I was wondering what the fuss was about.
1: Do, do you remember what the song was? <laughs>
4: uh, it, it probably would have been a Bob Dylan song. Oh, oh lovely, lovely. That well, is um, you are ask- the luckiest person in life. That is amazing. So I am the luckiest person in the world, and oh, um, I'm. It's interesting, you know. People might reflect on a Sunday. You know, how do you live a second life? And uh, And what I've learnt is that you engage. CVs are very important uh, in my first life. Um, And, you know, Mimi is uh, her work I know well. But in my second life, it's engagement with family, friends and society is the goal. Thank you, Lou. Lou.
1: Lou, could you just, (laughs) apart from that... Incredible story. How do you go on from that? Could you just tell us a bit about yourself? How did you get into medicine? Why the lungs? What's your background story?
4: Um, I was always interested in science but a, but a local GP who was, who was a mentor said, look, if you want to get to the top in, in medical science, you know, also do medicine because it opens a whole lot of other doors. And um, I'm thrilled I did. And I, I think medicine's one of the great professions. You know, we are incredibly lucky to be healthcare workers uh, and there are so many different routes, and a recent one that I've become aware of, having given some evidence at the long COVID inquiry, the parliamentary uh, inquiry, was that you know doc- there are now many doctors in parliament, and I think politics is a is a valid route mm. for healthcare professionals. Mm. Anyway, that's a, that's another story. Yeah. So why lungs? What. Um, I, I, uh lungs are terrific. Um, you know, I, I say to a medical student, you know, what are the two important organs in the thorax? And the answer is the right lung and the left lung. You know, the, the Forget heart, the heart. <laughs> the, the heart's just a pump. You know, and, um, you, know you, you can image the lungs. You can actually, uh, I can look at Mal um, at the moment and, and tell that his lungs are working okay because his work of breathing, you know, is barely noticeable. Um, I can measure his oxygen by putting a thing on his finger. We can image the lungs. We can look into the lungs with telescopes. We can take biopsies of the lungs. Um, They're good organs to work with.
1: Lovely, lovely. Um, So the reason we've got you on today is to talk about something that's Quite close to your heart, that's a good one, good pun. Ah, it's the other the other all. the, the other. Quite close <laughs> to your thorax, yeah. in your thorax, is um, your interest in long COVID. So would you help us understand what it is and what we can do for it and yeah. why you're interested in it?
4: So the story started three years ago um, in respiratory outpatients. We, we saw a young woman, she, she happened to be a healthcare worker, but she was also a busy mum. She'd had mild COVID, although she was, remember three years ago, people were locked locked up's not the right word, isolated in, in hotels in the city, and that was a very tough in, experience for her. And after about three or four weeks of the COVID, um, she became breathless and, ex- and so fatigued she couldn't leave her bed. And she was brought in to outpatients in a wheelchair. Her GP had done all the appropriate investigations and, you know, we had not seen anything like that before. So we admitted to the hospital and we did a whole lot of investigations and we couldn't find anything to explain the severity of the symptoms. And um, we asked a very wise uh, liaison psychiatrist to come and see her as well and he'd worked uh, in post-viral syndromes previously... And he didn't have an immediate answer, but he said, look, you know, there are principles of care and the first principle is to validate the symptoms, you know, listen to the patient. The second principle is avoid a mind-body dichotomy, uh, keep an open mind, provide very regular support, uh, use symptomatic treatment as, as needed and wait and see what happens. And that's uh, started a clinic, a dedicated clinic at Royal Melbourne. Uh, a clinician would see each patient. Then, at the end of the clinic, we had a multidisciplinary meeting where we had GPs, psychiatrists, psychologists, allied health, um, exercise physiologists, physio, etc. And we would try and come up with a management plan for individual patients. And after eight hundred patients, we now have learnt a bit. And. What have you learnt? It's a real condition. Mm. Uh, It's not a single condition. It's a whole lot of different things. In general, it gets better. Uh, There are roadblocks. And we need to do a lot more research. But listening and supporting the patient is incredibly important. And and it has a very adverse effect on their life. But the large majority get better.
1: So... I was Googling your clinic, and I, of which I already knew this information, but I came across some very distressing news that as of the 30th of June, you've lost all of your funding for this clinic,
4: this service. Uh, yes. So um, the, the hospital has decided to, um, to close the clinic. Um, I, I, I don't think it was a funding issue. I, I, perversely, I think it was because we were the only clinic and there was a concern that... That they might just get too much of a burden and
1: not manageable. So, mm. so closed, it's you've shut up shop.
4: Yes, look, I, I think if people had breathlessness and fatigue, we could see them in the general clinic. And and there are people who present with neurological symptoms, people with cardiac symptoms. You know, um, the the autonomic dysfunction that's very real and very common in long COVID uh, is managed well. at, by cardiology, and there's a very good clinic at the Austin. So it's not the end of the world. Um, So what does autonomic functions mean? What are you referring to there? The autonomic dysfunction? Yeah, so it was interesting. I I now use an oximeter uh, on every patient as they walk into the clinic room, and I keep half an eye on the patient and the other half on um, on the pulse rate. So normally I'm interested in the oxygen, but the oxygen's always normal. But the heart rate in someone with long COVID can just bounce around, you know, sitting quietly. And you'd say, well, you know, maybe they're anxious, but I've never seen people that anxious that their heart rate goes up to 120, 130. And then down again. And then down again. So fluctuating heart fluctuating. rates. Fluctuating. Yeah, yeah. That's and, interesting. And that, that feature tends to improve over time. It can be associated with low blood pressure and is probably one of the mechanisms for the fatigue. And when there is low blood pressure, it's important to, to, to manage that and there's a whole lot of ways of doing that. Mm.
1: So what do we call... Well, what's the definition of
4: long COVID? So WHO, have got a definition. Uh, you know, uh, at 12 weeks of persisting symptoms and, and a whole range of symptoms, um, I... And I think that's the appropriate definition. The quicker someone gets onto it, the better, though. And um, we, we, another reason for starting the clinic was that we had an outbreak at Royal Melbourne uh, and many staff were infected. And so many of our first patients were actually staff. And, and we saw them well before the 12-week mark. And I think the quicker that symptoms are validated and supported, the better.
1: So, Do you think this is sort of the model that was employed for chronic fatigue syndrome? Yeah. Mimi, um, yes. you, yeah, you're maybe. looking at Mimi. Do you want to comment, Mimi? <laughs>
3: um, chronic fatigue syndrome, I we never really had specialist clinics for, so in terms of a care model, probably not. But I suspect there are many similarities Um you know, we still don't really fully understand chronic fatigue syndrome. We do think it's, in some instances, post-viral, and we uh, think that it's dysregulation of the immune system specifically. Um, I don't know if...
0: So it shares some commonalities with post-COVID, I think is what Lou oh, was saying. Is I or, don't know. Yeah.
3: I, I'm not familiar with the science behind it, so I shouldn't speak. I pass yeah. back to Lou. I
4: think much of the fatigue in... Uh, long COVID is less chronic, you know, it do, does improve over time. Uh, I think chronic fatigue mm-hmm. syndrome can be very persistent. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt that um, COVID will, in someone who already has it, a COVID infection makes it worse. Mm-hmm. But, but COVID infection exacerbates a whole lot of other mm-hmm. conditions, you know, asthma, migraines, sleep disturbance, etc. And that's one of the reasons that it's, you know, a tricky condition to think about because, you know, are these symptoms de novo or are they exacerbated from the past or is there something else going on? Are
1: are there patient profiles that are higher risk of long COVID?
4: Uh, There are. Um, So so in very large epidemiological studies, you know, sort of middle-aged women with a previous... Medical conditions are possibly more at risk, but I think applying that to the person in front of you in the clinic, mm. you know, pro- probably isn't isn't helpful.
1: Unvaccinated,
4: is uh, that a big percent? There, there is, there is increasing data that vaccination da- pr- protects, but but it's not really strong data at the moment. Very good reasons to be vaccinated for other reasons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, don't we know it?
0: Uh, you were saying, Lou. Um, Fortunately, long COVID
4: tends to get better. Is yeah, that, yeah. yeah the, the large majority get better, and, and and the improvement can be very quick um, with reassurance and with rest. Yeah, you know, there, there's a very interesting. Um, Little subgroup of people we saw who who are very high achieving people, mm. who solve problems by putting energy into the problem, and if it's a big problem, they put even more energy into the problem, and they validate their wellness by exercising a lot, and so you know, they, if they can run ten kilometres, they're, they're they're well. If they can run twenty kilometres, they're, they're even better, and of course, some of them when they develop COVID used the same principle, So, you know, a week after COVID, they were out on the running track, they were at, back at work 12 hours a week and they were trying even harder um, to feel better, but where the solution was to rest. Mimi's looking at me as though these people don't exist, but, you know, it's, oh, no, a, it's not an extraordinary phenotype. It,
3: more that I, I do wonder if one of my own children uh, might have some long COVID, you know, and I think... I, I, I might have felt some of this fatigue afterwards and I was advised also to rest and uh, I think, you know, I'm fascinated. I I was going to ask you, Lou, actually, if I'm allowed, um, what are the physiological changes that you see in those patients who come through with, you know, difficulty walking, difficulty just getting about through Mm. shortness of breath? I mean, are there really substantial physiological changes?
4: So when we measure something like uh, a six-minute walk test... Apart from a heart rate response that's often heightened, uh, we don't find any abnormality. We do lung function; they don't, uh, it's normal. They don't desaturate, but next day they don't have any energy. They they have these boom or bust.
3: That's mm. what I thought you were alluding to. That's fascinating, isn't mm. it?
4: So we don't, you know, we we don't we've got pain sensors, we've got temperature sensors, but we don't have. F- Energy sensors. Mm. So you know, think about it. You wake up in the morning, you've got a petrol tank full of petrol. You, know, you keep on buzzing around the place, and then at some time that we think is appropriate to go to bed, we go to bed, and often we've just got to the bottom of the tank. But we don't. When we wake up in the morning, we don't have an accurate. Understanding of how much energy we've got, which probably depends on how well we've slept and a whole lot of other factors, and I think COVID infection in some way affects that.
1: So, if there are listeners that do have long COVID, what are, what are some take-home
4: messages? Um, listen to their body. Uh, be reassured that this is real and not in their head. Um, see a good practitioner. Uh, remain hopeful because you will get better. Um, look out for roadblocks. And, and the main roadblocks are doing too much mm. and secondary frustration, anxiety, mm. depression, mm. you know, to not getting better are common. So and, and they can be helped by a healthcare professional.
0: And were you saying there's there are some clinics that people can go to? Like, uh, first stop is always a GP, yep. but after there, is there other resources people can look can for?
4: Well, I, I mean, hos, hospitals have still got, um, you know, neurology clinic mm. and respiratory clinic and mm. so on. Um, allied health exercise physiologists and physiotherapists are terrific yeah. and, and getting graded exercise plans are very important. Time off work, yeah. is, you know, and we were hoping the parliamentary inquiry yeah. would actually subsidise time off work. Do you know? Um,
0: yeah, it's funny that you were saying you know, it's people who try and get back into work really quickly after COVID. I've Correct. got a couple of doctor mates who uh, developed long COVID symptoms, and it was perfectly that they just started running to it, like they actually physically started running too early. They went back to their old exercise regime. Same thing, working twelve hours a day. So you saw me smiling there, Lucas. That completely defines and then they double down because they're not they're not. Doing it so they can, I'll just even try harder. Why not?
1: And we also had a cardiologist on this show um, 12 months ago who said exactly what you've just said, Lou, about the advice don't get back on your bike and think it's all over. You're the group that really need this rest and to stagger your health to get back on the road. So true.
0: And, um, you know, we've got one minute left, but I, you know, we've got to get Lou and Mimi back oh. because the the idea of the mind-body duality, that is the legacy that Descartes has left us for 400 years and it has caused so many problems. The mind and body aren't separate. You know, one is the ink in the water. They're the same thing. Yeah. And yet, you know, in Western medicine has just, just kept those two apart. But that's for a whole other show. You have been listening to Radiotherapy here on 3 R with me, Dr. Mal, Nurse Epi Pen, Professor Mimi Tang and Professor Lou. Irving. We have covered so many things in this last hour. It has been an absolute absolute bonanza, wouldn't you say? Pleasure. It's a a, a
1: plethora.
0: Plethora. Plethora of information and pleasure. A a pleasurable plethora of information. Touché. Touché. Um, We are going to leave you with those scientists from Einstein and Gogo. I can see Dr. Shane smirking at me. Through, through the windows um, but we will be back next week for some more radiotherapy chat for now hi this is panel beater thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's radiotherapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health medicine and well-being broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday hope you enjoyed the podcast feel free to get in touch with us via radiotherapy's facebook page